0: Welcome to the Youth Voices of the Six, a podcast made by youth, for youth, and everyone in between. Powered by Toronto Team L and M of Pivot Canada. This podcast is sponsored by Pivot 2020 a Canada-wide youth employment research project jointly led by Youthful Cities and SFU Center for Dialogue. The aim of this project is to provide youth with employment, help youth gain experience in research, and explore other creative outlets that can help inform how youth in Canadian cities recover post-COVID-19. Before we begin this podcast, we would like to acknowledge that our work takes place on uncreated land and traditional territories and starves to honor the land on which we work, study, and gather. The land that I'm standing on today as a team member of Toronto, also known as Tuckerano, is located on the treaty lands and territories of the Mississauga of the Credit and traditional territories of the Ashinaaburg and Chapewa and and the Wendat peoples, and is now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit and Métis people. The territory is within the lands protected by the dish within one spoon Wampoon Belt Convent, an agreement between the Haudenosaunee and Anishibe and allied nations to peacefully share and care for the resources around the Great Lakes. As a disclaimer, this podcast may include swear words as well as recounts of racist attacks and experiences by the hosts and guests in this podcast. We feel the topics discussed in this t- podcast are necessary for us to explore and explain on the topic of racism in Toronto. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, my name is Yulan, I am, and I am the host of this podcast. With me, I have two guests, Ajay Scott, as well as Hania Saleem. So let's start off with um, introducing yourselves. So tell us about yourselves and what do you do?
1: Hey, y'all. So my name is Ajay Scott. i a team leader for um, Pivot 2020. Um, I'm also like a Black, um, Black Jamaican, um, person as <laughs> in uh, Toronto, um, and I'll be speaking about my experiences um, in Toronto being a, a black queer um, youth in, in Toronto. Yeah.
2: Hi folks, uh, my name's Hanya. I am also, I, I'm, a, I'm a team member at Pivot Canada. Um, in addition to that, I actually live in Vaughan, Ontario, which is just north of Toronto, uh, within the greater Toronto area. Um, I am a South Asian Muslim woman, um, a person of color living in uh, the Greater Toronto area. I'm also an immigrant. And so those are just like the different intersectional identities that I exist within. And I am excited to do this podcast to talk to you both about racism.
0: So thank you both of you for your introduction. So we'll just like jump right into the questions. And um, to start off, this is more of a conversation than an interview so both um, of you feel free to like ask your own questions as well as um give answers with whenever you feel like or if you don't feel like giving answers um yes honey
2: yeah Yulan do you want to give yourself like a quick introduction to let us know who you are what you're oh, about yeah.
0: <laughs> thanks um so my name is uh Yulan Hu as I like introduced myself in the beginning Um, I live in Toronto. I am an East Asian Canadian, so um, my ethnicity is Chinese. Um, I immigrated here when I was young with my parents, so my experiences would be um, growing up in Toronto as an immigrant as well as a minority. Um, I will be giving my experiences on how I grew up with that, and yeah, so we will have this little, like, use this as a conversation all three of us and um, feel free to jump in as much as you want and I'll start off with the question of have you ever experienced racism in
1: Chuan? yeah uh, I think when I when I think about racism I think about like just the condition that um, the 21st century is in um, and that is stemming from like colonization like slavery um, conquest, um, imperialism, um, dislocation, I think about all those different bigger systemic things that I think are affecting all of us um, on this chat and and other folks in Toronto. So for me, if I think about experiencing racism, I think about experiencing racism from that that lens. Um, And that is to say like anti-black racism is this entrenched, very intertwined um, in the current world that we live in and Toronto does not, it does not, is not excluded from that, um, from that world. And, um, yeah, so I, I'd say, yes, I do experience racism in Toronto, and it's specific to like anti black racism, um, that can come in in many forms. Um, I'm also like, I do it, I, I'm also like a, a lighter skin, um, black, b- black man. Um, so my level of racism that I experience is a little bit different from like, for some, for example, someone who's darkest skin. And maybe, and, and not maybe, but experience a little differently than I do. So for me, yeah, I, I do experience racism and I, I experience a specific kind of racism, which is anti-blackness, but also unpacking that um, I do have like lighter skin privilege. Um, so I experience it differently from other folks.
2: Yeah, um, I'm going to say, so I came here when I was five years old with my parents. Um, and that means that I've been through the education system here in Canada, in York region. I've lived here pretty much my whole life after that. So um, I think for me, because I live in Bonn and ever since we immigrated here, I've actually lived in uh, a diaspora of Pakistani Canadian immigrants. Um, I'm from Pakistan. So um, for me, that's been a huge privilege because I've always at least in my neighborhood, been surrounded by people who look and dress just like me. Um, I wear a hijab, so that's a pretty big deal. Um, and I, I think that's a privilege, but also what that means for me is, it, it's very difficult for me to answer this question in like a, in a simple way because I think racism is an experience that's so complicated and sometimes hard to recognize at face value. Um, so the short answer to your question is yes. Um, the long answer to your question is because I fall within so many like intersectional identities, like I said in the beginning, like because I'm, I'm South Asian, I have like a tan skin tone, um, I wear a hijab. Um, automatically people assume like what kind of person I, I can be or should be. Um, and so the experiences that I've had there's racism in there, but it's intertwined with different types of oppression and it's intertwined with like sexism, Islamophobia, and more than that. And I think, I think if I try to give you examples of racism in my life, I would have to sit here and try to like untie or like open up this braid of like different types of oppression that I've experienced in my, in my experiences um which would take a lot of time to do and it's just hard to think about so I've had many experiences where I've been treated unfairly where I've been treated with like discrimination and upfront violence um and there's racism in there but there's also different forms of oppression in there and it's like when that happens the perpetrator doesn't walk up to me and be like hey like tap me on the shoulder like hey just to let you know uh that what I what I just did that was racism like they don't that's not how it works right so um so yeah the the answer to your question is yes um i have experienced racism uh i don't live in toronto i live in vaughn so um i have experienced racism in both vaughn and toronto um and yeah that's that's the answer to your question
0: I feel you like when you said that um
2: people they sometimes
0: they don't actually express those racism like into your face or so, like that micro, like you know that microaggression, micro like racism, the subtle ways in which like they try to express their racist actions or thoughts. But like, let me just give you an example of like how um experience that I had when like during just during this pandemic um on like. East Asian racism because of COVID. So like, I I remember um, uh, my parents, they were like, okay, you guys have to wear a mask because there's a pandemic going on. Like, this is the early stages of the pandemic where, um, you know, like COVID wasn't taken as seriously because like everyone kind of thought, oh, it's going to be contained in Asia. Like, you know, but like when it got to Toronto, I would say, like, um, the East Asian community took it very seriously, and we started um, beginning wearing masks, but for a lot of East Asians, um, and also in my case, I was kind of afraid to wear masks, um, because I saw, like, people look at me differently, Um, like, when I was wearing a mask, they would kind of move away from me, right, and, um, like, I had a disease, and Or, like, they would like, um, suddenly like walk to the other side because I was East Asian and I was wearing a mask. So, like, this made me feel like, um, should I even wear a mask? If I wear a mask, would I be discriminated? Would I face racism? Um, there was also a time where I was wearing a mask and this guy comes to me, which was probably um, like, um, macro aggression in this case because he was like directly, um, spewing his racist thoughts basically he said to me um you people don't belong here because of you people um that's why we're dying and then I I didn't even know what to say to that like something like that like how do you respond to like you know these racist like in your face like um like macro aggressions compared to like microaggressions where you actually don't know if like they are being like, racist or not, or just, you know, like how, what are your thoughts on like um, ma- macro or micro aggression in the form of
1: racism? And before I like I jump into that question, I, I'd like to just like acknowledge that like, yeah, like I think COVID has, I, again, like, I think the world that we live in is deeply racist and um it's not it's, it's such a it's, it's such a it's so intertwined with like Canadian culture um and I want to say like Canadian culture as in um like white Canadian culture but um everyone kind of like ties into like Canadian culture and just to say like yeah like I think that th- those like anti-Asian sentiments or anti-Asian racism came in um as a result of COVID in the sense that like there's this historical um, there's a history, history behind why um, folks are targeting like like East Asian like Chinese folks, um, especially around like disease, which is I think tied to colonization and tied to like um, imperialism. In the sense that like historically, that has just been a thing that like I think European colonizers have put on um, Asian folks because of um, the food that they eat and that just that just that difference in culture, and I think. Because those things were like hidden for a long time, and COVID nineteen kind of like exacerbated all those experiences, which is has always been a part of Canadian society. And Canada has a very um, hush hush race has a very hush hush racism, where like um, like Henny was um, Henny was saying um, they don't necessarily do it overtly, but they'll do it in very subtle ways. And you sometimes you pick up on it, and sometimes you don't pick up on it. But those kind of lead to like those microaggressions, that can like just lead to like a bigger, like just bigger frustrations, you know. And I and I think that like I'm I experience that that as well. And it's it's yeah, it's a part of like just the bigger the bigger system that is very entrenched in in a racist culture.
2: And I I want to kind of speak on that. Um, I think Edra, you're right. Like there are larger systems that kind of trickle down seep into society into the individual individual lives of people and that's why we have people who are walking around saying these kind of things doing these kind of things um but like to answer your question elon of like what do you say to that person i don't really know if there is anything that you could say at that point that that would be beneficial for that person because if we try to imagine what's going on in that person's head, obviously, I'm not speaking from any point of expertise. This is just my personal opinion. But if I try to like, think about the rationality behind why that person is behaving that way, that person has already got a reality that they've constructed. And that lens that they see the world through is a really thick lens that is reinforced by the people that this person is around, by the systems and the organizations that this person is a part of, and by the larger institutions in our and like nationally and internationally that we see on our media, um, through our public policies, all of it. So, because that reality is constantly reinforced, it does not matter what you say to that person. I don't think any words you could speak to that person would help them to break free of of that, that perspective. I think um, I think racism is something like any form of oppression. It's a lens that people use to to protect themselves. I think I think people who who perpetuate systems of oppression. Mm -hmm. um, I think a lot of the mentality behind that is, is they feel they're doing what they're doing in order to protect themselves and people like them. Um, but in reality, all they're doing is, is just spreading, um, harm. They're harming other people around them and the, the hatred that they're spreading at face value, it may not be hurting the people that they're trying to so-called protect, but it's dismantling democracy. It's dismantling, um, the systems that we should have in place to protect all people. And when you dismantle those systems, um, there's an illusion there that, okay, um, if I like immigration, for example, if, if we prevent more immigrants from coming into Canada, then we can preserve the jobs and um, ensure that the people who are here have like a good quality of life. I think that in itself, is a perception that causes people to like go on the street and be like no we don't want any more immigrants you people go back to your country um but that again in itself is a perspective that has been reinforced by the society the systems that we live in um and i may be repeating myself so if you see that i'm going in circles please do feel free to break the circle (laughs) um but i think it's just so heavily reinforced i don't know what you could say i think it just has to be like your actions I think, as a people, we can only break people free of these illusions or realities that they're living in through action and behavior. Um, it's very difficult to to convict to convince a person or persuade them um, using stories or or stories or things that they can't see. Um, whereas when you give people things that are tangible, like actions or behaviors or movements or organizations that shed light on the real things that are happening and what reality actually is, I think just showing that to people is a more effective way of breaking that perception, that misperception of what is really happening in the world. Yeah. How much um, of that made sense?
0: (laughs) No, no, no. It made a lot of sense. Like when you say it reinforces like their w- worldview and like from the media, right? Like from institutions. So like it kind of goes to our like other question of like what extent does um systematic or institutional racism enforces like racism from the from all places? Like you were saying that the media as well as like maybe government sometimes um their laws and reg- um regulations enforces those kind of behaviors, right? So I, I know like, like it has been happening in the Western world for, I don't know, for like a long, long time, right? From before even Canada became Canada, like a country, right? Like the um, systematic institutional racism was deeply entrenched into like a lot of, almost all parts of society in um, North America. with was like, um, I would say, like slavery, as well as like like one of the earliest discrimination against Native Americans, as um, Aboriginals, as well as like, if we go like a little closer to home right now, like in the 2000s, like, you know, Islamophobia um, after 9-11, as well as like, they find new targets after like COVID right now, like East Asians. So like, to what extent do you guys believe that, um? Systematic racism pers- um, persists in Toronto right now. The world we live in is for the institutional racism that is enforced in our society right now.
1: Um, so that's a heavy question. <laughs> um, I'd say that
0: um, if you guys are not feel like um, it's a bit heavy, we could we could always move on to the um,
1: another question.
0: But I kinda just want to jump from like what Hani was saying, like how institutions as well as like that reinforcement from like they're in their people's minds like how long and how like um deep has like this been going on for like in our society I just want to kind of ask that question
2: if you guys are like comfortable answering that so I don't know as I do want to because I I could go on about this so I want to give you a chance to (laughs) answer that
1: OK, I'll, I'll jump here for a little bit. I, I think that like that question of how long, like since the first like colonizer stepped on indigenous lands in the West and since the, the first imperialist stepped on other lands in the East, then that's just how it's, it's been. And the reason I say that is like colonization, I started off at the topic of like centering colonization, conquest, um, imperialism and dislocation and mm-hmm. in post-colonial theory and a postcolonial. there's no post-colonial context places are still colonized but in that in that like regard it's always been the, it, it kind of has always been this case since the the West has kind of for me it's like the Americas um, has been quote unquote created or colonized as this use word colonized um, or conquered and it, as again, like it start like a lot of this, a lot of these institutionalized things started from colonizers and um, folks who were just trying to make money, trying to like take people's land. Um, so it's been it's been entrenched, um, not only in I remember you're you're talking about laws, but really heavily in law. But like nowadays, laws say they have equity, equ- equity lens, say that like they're inclusive. But if, the, if those laws are just written and, and folks don't really follow them, then there's no equity. That's say there's no equity there, but there's like a limited amount of equity um, and inclusive inclusivity. So for me, like when I think about like just the fact that like indigenous folks had to be colonized um, for us to be able to be on these lands, African people had to be um, enslaved for, us to have the form of capitalism that we have now, the form of world that we that has been built. Folks from the East had to have been uh, made into indentured workers. Folks had to have their land conquered. There's just so much um, that I, I think that it's so entrenched in the world that we live in now, that there are laws that are, the laws that are in place don't, they, they, they say that they're reflective, like for example, Multiculturalism in Canada says that it's reflective and keeps folks in mind, but there's so much institutions that are still um, anti-black, anti-indigenous, anti um, xenophobic, like spew a lot of um, Islamophobia. Like there's so much, there's still so much oppression like tied into the society that we live in, you know, like today, that I don't necessarily like think there there, there is an ending all right, there is a not say there's no ending, like that's not hopeful. <laughs> but to say like there this, the start of this goes back so far. And it's it's um it's important to say that like we're kind of moving forward um or moving to a, a a a better place. But yeah like it's it's just it's so into deeply intertwined in how Canada was created. Speak going back to speaking to Canada, how Canada was created and how Canada is still run. I still organize. I remember just before um, just before um, COVID started, um, Indigenous folks were losing their their lands. Um, there was there was the, the 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 solidarity say organizing around like Wet'suwet'en and like what folks were experiencing in what's Wet'suwet'en and just like the colonial government versus like um, Indigenous government and versus like the government that it, like the Canadian government put in in place and in Indigenous communities. So like there's just there's just so much that's been going on. Um, that again like the starting versus it's just it's just a, it's it's just been a part of, of what we've been experiencing for so long. Um and go speaking to like anti-black racism in, in, in Toronto and in Canada. There's so much that's like there's so much over policing of black communities. Black yeah, like, <laughs> I don't even, it, just starting on that is itself is a lot like and speaking to what like Kenya was saying around like, not, it's not only in Canada, but it's like we live very close to like America. And not this, not to compare racism, because that's like that's not right. But can like American racism affect Canadian racism, and vice versa, right? Um, and we see what's been happening in the states, and a lot of that has been happen, happening over here, with a lot of a lot of police officers who've inflicted violence on Black communities, walking free. You know what I'm saying? Like, and I, I get emotional about it, so I don't like talking about it too much. Um, but yeah, like, there's just so much. There's just so much. Um, and I'll, I'll pass it on to, to Hanya.
2: Yeah. Um, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say I don't think that it's something that's intertwined in our society. I think it is the basis of our society. I think racism and systems of oppression are the foundation. Upon which our society stands, North American society, and the kind of tools or or methods that we use to lay this foundation of oppression were colonialism, imperialism, um, globalization have has amplified those um, like existing systems. I think that I think what Ajay is talking about. You're describing a pain that I think all people feel who exist within the society, who do not fall into that main like primary category that the society is designed for. And it's designed it's designed in a way where, as a person of color, the the further you try to go, the more you try to accomplish um, whatever success looks like for you the harder you try to achieve a just, equitable, good quality of life. The society is designed in a way that the more the harder you try, it, the more and more obstacles are put in front of you to prevent you from getting there. There are, so many, there are so many obstacles in the way. That's only for if you're a person of color. If you add another identity on top of that, your Muslim or um any other religious minority or if you're um, if you're a woman if you belong to the LGBTQ+ plus community if you belong to any other um, I don't want to say minority but any other community that is problematized or marginalized it it you take those obstacles and just it, it it gets amplified, it gets multiplied. And you feel like you started to climb. When you started climbing, it was just a hill. But the more you climb, it it turns into Mount Everest. And you can never reach the top because the further, the higher you go, the higher the altitude, the harder it is to breathe. That's just how it's designed. Um, If I was a white male who was born and raised in Canada, I would be given a really big oxygen tank and like a team of people to help me get up that mountain. But because I'm an immigrant, a Pakistani Canadian immigrant Muslim woman of color who wears a hijab, I get nothing, right? And I have to, I have to purchase my equipment myself. I'm going really far in this metaphor, but I'm I'm trying to, and I think it's a good metaphor to make that point where I have to get all the resources myself. I have to set up everything myself and then climb that mountain myself as well. And doing the physical work there is difficult enough. There's so much emotional labor that goes into that and there's psychological trauma that I have to work through at the same time. Because I know that I'm doing all of this work. My parents had to make an even greater sacrifice to get me to this place so that I would be able to have the re- access to the resources that I have. And I'm gonna have to make a really big sacrifice so that the generations that come after me can have a bit of an easier life. And this is going to be passed down from generations the same way it was passed down to me from previous generations. And so there's an intergenerational trauma. There's the trauma I accumulate in my own life. And then there's the trauma that I anticipate that the people who will come after me will accumulate in their lives. And so now I'm walking, I'm walking through society with all of this weight on me that, and it's, it's so, um, very sad because I've had conversations with men who are white who who do not understand the weight that I'm carrying like I remember having a conversation um, with someone who is a white male um, about two years ago and I was trying to explain to him that like yes I have an education and I have a degree a bachelor's degree and I'm and I'm well in my way to getting like a, a good job and building my career but I'm carrying family traditions and an eastern culture with me that I have to fulfill I don't have just I don't just have the one list of like the tasks I need to do in western society to be respected I, I have two lists I have things that I need to do within my eastern culture in order to gain respect and, and value and worth and like that just didn't it, it just didn't seem to make sense and on the other hand I have had a, a conversation with a my, white male who com- completely understood just because he had experience um, being around other people who were people of color who had certain experiences. And so I think, I think it's a matter of exposure and it's a matter of actually showing people with actions and behavior, what reality is. Um, Because I think there's so many people who just don't know reality. And I want to give an example of like the two extremes that it can be like how overt and covert it could be like overtly, my first experience with racism, um, because as I said earlier, I'm privileged. I grew up in a Pakistani Canadian community with people who looked just like me. So I went to school with a bunch of brown people. Right. Um, but I, so I, I think I was in the third grade. Yeah. The the third or fourth grade. Um, and I went to the park one day on a weekend, like the, the park in my neighborhood. And I don't know if you know about the game grounders, but it's like, You have to get on like the swing sets or whatever. You can't touch the floor. And we were playing that game and it was me, another um, brown kid and then two other white kids. And I remember them calling me Paki and like cracking jokes about it. And I I thought it was like, like it was something that I, I was just laughing because I was like, oh yeah, like totally. I'm Pakistani. You can call me Paki. Sure. Um, Only later in my life did I learn that Paki is actually a derogatory term used towards immigrants or not even immigrants anyone who has brown skin that's a derogatory term that's used towards them and i only later understood that and then the other like that was an intentional kind of a thing to make me feel bad but on the other hand on the other side of this um i remember i think this was last year i took an uber to school to university And my Uber driver was like an older white male. And I remember having, and I wear a hijab, right? So I remember having a conversation with him. He was telling me about his son who uh, was in the, in the trades and how he was disappointed that his son had gotten a degree, but then not pursued like a white collar job. And I was just having a conversation with him and like, like it was a good, like we were vibing and he was being honest with me. So he like, he looked at me like obviously through the rear mirror and he was like, You have like he was like, You have a really good accent. I was like, what do you mean? He's like, you speak English really well. I was like, yeah, I do. I grew up here. He's like, oh wow, good for you. Um and that in itself, it was like it was because in his head he's not being racist, but that's because his reality there, his perspective there, that perception because I look this way I probably have an accent. It's been reinforced not only by the things that he sees um like it hasn't been reinforced just by his personal life experiences. Um it's been reinforced by the things people tell him, the things that people around him tell him, the things that are portrayed on the media. The way that people who look like me are portrayed, that's what leads to that perception and that's what led that man to say that hey, you don't have an accent. That's so surprising. So there there are microaggressions and macroaggressions to go back to your original question Um, but I don't think racism is something that's just intertwined I think if there was no racism the society we live in could not exist capitalism could not thrive we live in an era of neoliberalism and neoliberalism is where we say that we're trying to create an equitable society but you add capitalism to that and what that means is Saying that, yes, we we're were we trying to create an equitable society, but we're also allowing people to take advantage um, of the society or, or, or advantage of other people for their own benefit without any limits. And what that means is I can go create an organization and try to create profit um, at the cost of other people's um, well-being or mental health, and I will not be held accountable for that in a neoliberalist society, um, because... By law, I'm allowed to do that. Yeah, racism, oppression, these things are the foundation of this society. And if these things did not exist, we wouldn't have the society we live in. I don't think it's just something that's intertwined. That's why it seems never-ending, because there is no end. It's it's the beginning and the end of this whole society. Like w- what you all said, like I, I
0: totally 100% like, agree with that, Hania. Um, I just want to... Um, point out something well like not point out I just want to go back to a point where you were saying that like you were with your uber driver who was like an older white male and he said like nice accent like you know like um your accent you don't have an accent right and you're like I was I lived here my whole life and I was just thinking wow like this experience like for people of color they're like the perpetual foreigner you you know um I remember when I was working with um Elections Canada and my co-worker who's sitting beside me he asked like oh where are you from and I told him oh I'm from Toronto like I grew up here my whole life right um and then he looked at me and he said no where are you really from like you know like as in like I couldn't be you know born here I, I wasn't born here but like as in I don't belong here, like the way he said it was almost like, you don't belong here. I I know maybe he wasn't like thinking as a like a very racist term or something, he was just maybe curious, but the tone of every time when you're like a person of color and someone comes up to you or like you're talking with someone and when you introduce yourself, they always almost always ask, where are you from? And then when they ask you where you're from, it's not like, oh, I'm from like Vaughan, I'm from like Toronto, I'm from Montreal. No, it's not like that. It's like, where are you from that's not a Western country? Like I'm from China, so like their expectation of you is to say, oh, I'm from China, I'm from Pakistan, I'm from Jamaica. Like, it's just like, you don't belong here. And I I don't know like how this has been perpetuated but like most of the people who ask me that, well, like not even most, like almost all of the people who ask me that are people are like white people. Um, usually, like pe- another person of color, they never ask me, "Oh, where are you from?" Like where I'm from, from like, or like when they asked me where are you from, I was like, "Oh, I'm from Toronto." And they're like, "Oh, okay." But like most of the time, when people delve deeper, when I say, "Oh, I'm from Toronto," it's always mostly white people. So I wanna ask um, Ajay and um, Hania, did you ever have something like this kind of experience where you feel like you're like the perpetual foreigner in like a society where you feel like
1: you belong? Um, I could, I could jump in uh, first. Um, I hate those questions. Cause I'm just looking at, the, I'll always just look at folks and just be like, like, really, you're gonna ask me that question now? It's it's. 20 it's 2019, it's 2020. Like the world is a so, it's such a diverse place. Like we know so many other places exist. And you're you're yourself as a freaking immigrant. Like you well, you're you're a colonizer, like you're you're colonized Islam, like you you don't own you, you don't you're not from here either. So like I don't know, it, it, it really irks me when people ask me that question, especially white folks, and it's never like the first answer is never enough. And I always what I always do is like, hey, but like, yeah, where are you? Where are you from? I always put it back on them, and they're like, oh, like I'm from so and so. I'm like, but well, oh, like, but well, where's where's your ancestors from? Like, where your where where did your parents or your grandparents came from? And they're like, oh, like I'm Scottish and 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 British, or like I'm such and such. And I'm like, okay, like, so we 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 we're on not common ground, but we have a common understanding that we we're not all from here. So just like. Yeah, like there's just always this power and privilege that is attached to the, that question, um, and a lot of time folks may not realize that they're like they're perpetuating white supremacy just by asking like a simple question like that. Just to, I don't even know what they're trying to do to be honest with you, because I've had questions like yeah. that, and then I'm like, yeah, like I'm 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 from Toronto, and they're like, but like, and
2: I wanna mm-hmm. yeah, I wanna break I wanna break that down. Um, I think when people have asked me that question. Typically, and I have been asked that question by people who um, are also immigrants. I think whenever I've been asked that question, it's, I think what the person is trying to do is, at least from what they tell me, is that they they want to see if they can better understand me um, as if learning about where I've immigrated from is a way of better understanding me. And I think that perception comes from the idea that if you're from somewhere else, um, like, There's this perception that, first of all, coming to the West is a privilege, that this land, being on this land for you as an outsider is a privilege. And so you should be grateful that you've had the opportunity to come here. And then so there's that kind of layer to it. There's also the layer of, well, you're from somewhere else, so you've got to be different. And there's no way that you can understand the values and ideas that I hold as a person. And even further than that, I've had a lot of white people asked me that question coming from the the pretense that you have to tell me what your ethnicity is because I don't think I have the ability to understand you until you tell me. And that, I think, trying to pinpoint the problem, I think that is the problem, is this um, kind of presumption that spell out for you exactly who I am and exactly the society, the culture, the religion I prescribe to, so that you can call on those stereotypes to understand who I am, rather than taking the time to get to know me, to develop a perception of who I am based on my reality and my actions, rather than on the stereotypes you have associated with those identities. And I've unfortunately come across instances um, with people who are white and also people of color who who ask me this question coming from the assumption that they don't have the ability to understand and that is a problem because that alienates me as a person so much because it, it sends the message that you are so foreign you are so different that there's no way for me to comprehend who you are and what you're doing and why you're doing it unless you translate that to me in my language and I think that's why this question creates so much anger inside of me at least Um, because it it seems like a harmless question but it's perpetuating that alienation even for people who are born here like I, I know people who've been born and raised first and second generation sometimes even third generation who are asked this question and then have to stand there and justify who they are and translate it into the English language Because they're now being put in a position where it's like, if you don't tell me, then there's no way for me to comprehend you. That's problematic. I think that's why it's a problem.
1: I have a a question just to like ask, like ask Yilan and um Um, I find that like sometimes when, and this is the difference, like when younger people, like sometimes when younger people ask that question, like if they're younger, I feel like there's a little bit of leeway for me, Um, because I like for me, I like sometimes asking that question because. It helps me understand like just the diversity. I'm like yo, like oh shoot, like you're from, you're from Pakistan, okay. Like what is that? Like what is that? Like what is that experience like? Um, especially being growing up in Toronto, and like how does that how does that intersection, kind of inf- inform your 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 understanding of being in Toronto? And I bring that up because like I remember um there's a book by Dion calm called um I think it's called A Long Way Gone. Is it that one? Um, I think it's called A Long Way Gone. And it's basically talking about like this youth in Toronto and how they, um, kind of how like just the, the mixture of like youth culture um, in Toronto. And, and sometimes I find like for younger people, I find that like, there's like a, there's like a, a pride um, and like, I don't know, like just more of like a, a what's the word I'm looking for? It's just, it's, it's when you have like a lot of different um, people in your community from like all over the world, like folks find pride in, in that experience um, in Toronto. And I don't, I don't know like if that's like, exotifying folks or if it's like problematic in itself, but I find that like sometimes younger folks, longer, long, younger people of color, I, don't, I can't speak for white folks. Um, and I'll speak for like, just like myself as a, as a black, um, a black person is, and I'm also like, I came here in 2010. So I've only been here for the past 20 years to 10 years but i find that like for me coming from jamaica um i a, a very like like the countryside of jamaica coming to toronto was a really dope experience because i was i was experiencing people um and cultures from so many different parts of the world where in my in my like, a jamaican con- community like most of the tourists or people I, I i was um i encounter, encountered encountered were white folks who came to like came on vacation right that's that's most of what i, I experienced so for me coming to Toronto, and this experience is like, yo, there's so much different culture. There's so much groups of like a different um, group of people in community. Um, for me, it was such a, a dope experience that like I'm always interested in like connecting with someone who's different from me, because I love like understanding um, who they are. Like just like to, to to touch on what Henny is saying, is like not they're not say like yo, I'm trying to understand you because you're you're so much different from me, but like I. I'm trying to understand you or understand, not say understanding, but I'm I more so say connect with you because um, there's just so much, there's so much like of who you are and so much I can I can learn from you. Yeah, I don't know if that makes sense. I feel like I'm rambling because I'm getting excited. Like I feel like a little no, child it makes, when I first came here.
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, it makes perfect sense. I think what you're touching on is, so I, I think multiculturalism is a double-edged sword. Um, the reason I say that is multiculturalism is a wonderful thing because I'm now able to gain exposure to cultures and backgrounds and traditions of from all over the world. And that exposure is so beneficial because it's going to expand my worldview. It's going to give me a better sense of reality and it's going to help me develop a more inclusive, equitable understanding of the world. At the same time, when you have people of different ethnicities, different backgrounds, different cultures, living within the same space, it goes back to that pretense that if you're from the same background as I am, I can understand you better. And so people from the same backgrounds try to stay together. And that's why even in Toronto, you'll see that we have different areas of the city that you, like it's well known for a particular culture or a particular diaspora. So with multiculturalism, you have people who are well aware of different types of cultures but within that uh, type of existence you also have people clumping together into groups and now you have a divided city you have a city that's compartmentalized into the different diasporas or the different um, cultures so and sometimes those categories those those compartments are like they have strict borders sometimes they're not very permeable and other times they are very open, but that's what I mean when I say that multiculturalism is a double-edged sword because it, it allows you exposure to um, a larger array, variety of, of experiences, cultures, backgrounds, which will develop your your world view, but it also forces you to try to hold on to your own identity and solidify it so you don't lose yourself. People don't like uncertainty. People don't like ambiguity. People don't like leaving themselves open and vulnerable. We wanna hold on to something that is concrete. And so when you're surrounded by people who are so different from you, we have a tendency as human beings to develop a concrete identity that we can hold on to for our lives. And that's when people become rigid. And that's when we start to develop stereotypes of other, other identities that also become rigid. And then this is where we have people who maybe consciously and subconsciously know that what they're doing is racist or sexist or um, i forgetting the other ones, Islamophobic, et cetera. People who know that they're perpetuating oppression and they know what they're doing is wrong but they don't stop doing it because if they stop doing it, then they have to let go of their identity. And that is more painful psychologically than it is to admit that you were wrong. So we have people who, even though they know they're wrong, they continue to perpetuate systems of oppression because it's just easier because the alternative to that is letting go of this concrete identity that you're holding on to. It feels like if I let go of this identity, I could lose my life. Like it gets that serious because it, it, it shoves people into uncertainty. And one thing I like to say, I'm a psychology student. So like, if I get annoying with this, let me know. But one thing I like to say is, um, there are two things in life that are certain. One is our need for certainty, and the other is that life is constantly going to push you into uncertainty. And it's it's the same concept that like the only thing that is constant in life is change. And as human beings, our tendencies as a being, as a creature is to look for certainty but the way that life is designed is designed you have to you have to build that certainty for yourself and you have to accept that it's going to change it's going to evolve and that you you have to let some of that uncertainty in and i think the people who are really resilient who've really developed their emotional intelligence who are mentally mentally resilient are people who have completely accepted uncertainty and are and are completely confident in their identity especially when like everything is up for grabs and you don't know what reality really is. I think that is like a level of existence that's very difficult to achieve, but also allows you to live through life very well. Um, I don't know to get on this tangent, um, but I think that should answer your question. Yeah, um, beautiful answer, Hanya.
0: Um, I just wanna like give my little answer to um, Ajay's um, question. So like usually I'm fine with when people ask, oh, where are you from? If it's in the context that we have already talked a bit, um, usually I am very, I I am annoyed by people who like, as soon as I meet you, you're like, where are you from? Like, oh, we say hello, name and like, you know, and then as soon as they say that they're like, oh, where are you from? Um, To me, I kind of feel like that's, um, you, maybe like some people maybe just want to like get an understanding of you as like your cultural identity or something. But um, most of the time, I feel like people who ask, where are you from? Like a lot of time like um, people of color, they, um, for me personally, they only ask after a certain, like we have a certain um, time of conversation. So like, we're like, oh, hello. And then, like after we speak a bit, and, I, and maybe I mention, oh, like um, you know, like something about my culture or like my race, and then they're like, oh, where are you from? Just to get like um, you know, better picture of like my context, right? But like the thing I'm kind of irked about is as soon as I meet you, you ask me where I'm from. That kind of just feels like that. You think I am like a foreigner like i'm not a, like i'm going back to the um, when I was working at Canadian um, elections so like when you work at Canadian elections right. Um, you need to be a Canadian citizen so i'll be, uh, everyone who works there like during the elections needs to be a Canadian citizen so. Um, my coworker as soon as I like you know introduced myself, he asked me where i'm from, I feel like okay you know. I'm a Canadian citizen. I know you're a Canadian citizen. We're like, we're all Canadian citizens here. So why are you, as soon as I greet you, you ask me where I'm from? You know what I mean? Like, yeah, that's not in a place where they're curious about, um, oh, you as a person, like Hanya said, you as a person, but like, they're more so think of you as, oh, like maybe subconsciously, maybe they actually don't like um actually was trying to be kind of racist but as soon as you greet me and you ask me where I'm from that kind of makes it look like that you don't
2: think I belong here
0: you know what I mean
2: yeah I think it's also a shortcut right if I meet you and I see that you're a person of color asking you where you're from knowing that you're a Canadian citizen asking you where you're from is a shortcut it's if you because if you tell me where you're from you're where you're like that question of where are you actually from if you give me a place that's different from here then I can apply those stereotypes to you as a person and now I don't have to put in the energy to get to know you it's a shortcut right so it's like it's conserving the energy that I'm going to use to get to know who you are by applying those stereotypes and that is that's a that's oppression because now I've kind of made this decision subconsciously that you're not worth getting to know that you are not someone I'm going to take seriously as a person because like why do we why do we want to get like as human beings when I socially interact with people the reason I want to get to know someone is to see if I have any values that overlap with that person if this person could um, contribute positively to my life in some way and when I ask you that question of like okay where are you from where are you actually from I've acted on the assumption that you have nothing positive. You're going to contribute to my life. And there is nothing that I can gain from getting to know you. Therefore, I'm going to take a shortcut and ask you where you're from so I can apply those stereotypes and not have to so called waste my energy trying to get to know you. So you're already put into a category of being like a subclass citizen, and you're not on the same playing field as other people who are not people of color you're not given that same like value you're not worth getting to know i think that that's why it feels like you're a foreigner because they're they're automatically um you're automatically subconsciously being treated like you're not worth um getting to know you're not worth forming an identity you're not even you're not even given the chance to to make a first impression on someone it's already made for you you're expected to to Um, kind of carry a card with you that says what you are I read this book called the writing on my forehead and I think the, the title of that book in itself is so powerful it explains exactly what that experience is like it's like there is writing on my forehead that says who I should be and for me I wear a hijab and I know I've reiterated that a couple times but that is like the first thing you see when I walk into a room and that is the first thing or the primary thing that has been used to oppress me in this society, right? I I have been approached by multiple people on the subway questioning why I wear a hijab, sometimes in, in a curious way, sometimes in a violent way. I've had people who told me I have no right to wear a hijab because I don't speak Arabic, right? Like all kinds of things. Um, I once walked into um, like a Wings place that was also a bar and there was a man there who was, again, Saying that, like, like I should either choose to wear it or not be here, or sorry, choose to wear it or like and stay out, or um, if I'm gonna wear it, then I can't be in here, like that kind of thing. Um, and he was very drunk, so like the bartender was apologizing and everything, but this is what I mean: like you're not given a chance to to register what your character or who you are as a person. Um, you're walking around with writing on your forehead and anywhere you walk in, that's the impression that people take. They don't want an impression from you. They don't want to hear you. Even if you speak, they don't want to listen um, because it means I'm going to spend energy and I've already decided that I don't, that there's nothing you can contribute to my life. So I don't want to get to know you. And that decision is typically subconscious. I know we're like nearing the end, but I want to also bring up that like I am saying all of these things now after having like to getting an education, I'm privileged in that I have an education. I have a roof over my head. I I have access to all the resources that I need to live out a good quality of life. And I'm sitting here and I'm saying all of these things with a lot of privileges. And there have been times in my life where I've perpetuated these systems myself because I've been complicit or because I've been unable to recognize what's happening. Right. And I think that touches on internalized racism. Um, which is something that I do want to touch on because it's part of this conversation. When you exist in a society, you're perpetuating that racism that it's built on.
1: So might I just add like internalize white supremacy as, as another word um, to, yeah. to, come, to pair with like internalized racism? Because I feel like a lot of these things stem from like white supremacy and they're perpetuated like for example, you speak to about like the different uh, different intersections, and, I, and I'm really grateful that you brought that point up because you, you spoke to like your experience as like a, um, a Pakistani Muslim woman and just like how that experience is different from someone who's um, um, might be like Arabic, you know what I'm saying. And, and I think it's important to like, yeah, like just like, make those distinctions and also make the distinction that like we do perpetuate racism ourselves. So that's something I've been thinking about because we've been speaking about like a lot, a lot of like white folks have been doing this, but like communities and people of color like perpetuate racism. Like I know for sure, like when I, when I, when I, a few years years ago, a few years ago, sometimes even now, like I have racist thoughts and I'm like, shit, like am I racist? But I think it's just the idea that like, when, when, you, have, when you have racist thought, you, you understand that we live in a racist society, and it's how do I keep myself accountable for um, for those thoughts, or, and not perpetuate oppression and or, or perpetuate harm. So I'd want to say like this, just, just to bring that out, like bring that up to say that like people of color can be racist as well to each other. And it's like, are we buying into white supremacy, or are we trying to like build build bridges across communities, kind of thing? So yeah, like there's points. There's for me like, and this just, just to, to such an honesty it's just like that point of like. Uh, sometimes there's like those deeply entrenched thoughts that are just like so automatic. And for me, like I catch them and I'm like, yo, shit, like that was racist or that was sexist or that was homophobic, right? As in, and I'm, I'm, I'm queer and I can still like, I'd say, I, I still experience, it, experience those thoughts. Um, but I think there's a difference between like experiences, experiencing like um, those, having those experiences or those internalized experiences um, and checking yourself and calling yourself out and or calling yourself into a conversation to be like, yo, that was racist. How do I unpack that for myself? Rather than like someone who's just gonna be overtly, um, that's it. I let me just say if I'm, I'm framing this right, cause I can, like th- there's, there's borders, you know? But I, what I'm trying to say is like, how do we keep ourselves accountable? You know, like on an individual level, because we know sis- the systems are out there that perpetu- perpetuate these, these, perpetuate racism. Um, and it's, as, as Henya has mentioned, like it's, it's the foundation from which like Canada is built, foundation which, from which like a lot of countries have been built, a lot of Western countries. How do we keep ourselves accountable? Is something that I always go back to. Um, and it comes from um, this D B Young uh, quote, and it's like, systems are great, systems are grand, but systems are made up of people, and I always not I'm not not to um, say like yo if put it on an individual all the time because we are part of a system and we are influenced by that system, but to know that like I have choice, um, I have a choice in how I move and how I operate, and um, in, in how I engage with people, is is important to know that to to, to kind of like regain my power in that sense to say that like I'm not gonna say I'm being racist because. Um, my friend is being racist, or my family is being racist. Um, I think I have an obligation to myself to understand the folks that I'm, I'm, I'm around, um, understand myself, and move accordingly, um, not from like a racist or like oppressive space, but more so from curiosity, um, a more loving curiosity, if that makes sense. And yeah, I always like, how do I hold myself accountable? Because like, I, I know that like the system I, I grew up in like the family I grew up in have racist tendency and it's how do I how do I keep them accountable how do I keep myself accountable um, and how do I move in the world trying to be less oppressive and less harmful if I'm if I know if I'm making if I'm making sense um, and I'll pass it back to either Henya or
2: you're always making sense why do you doubt it <laughs> um, I want to speak to one thing you said there. Um, that thought that you mentioned of like, oh, my God, am I being racist? Uh, I think that fear is a fear that like most, I, I don't want to say most, but I think a lot of us carry as people of color or just anyone of like being labeled as someone who is racist or sexist or uh, misogynist or homophobic or Islamophobic, all of those those terms that we're we're so afraid of. and I think this fear that we have is what creates a stigma around having these conversations. I'm gonna be honest with you, like before coming here, I was kind of scared of like, okay, like how far in detail should I go? Like I need to make sure I'm talking in like a politically correct way. Um, and I think it's because there's so much fear that's there's so much fear that's just been, perpetuated um, in this society uh, like around being different and that's why I think that's why internalized racism is a thing like what I mean by that is um, I'll give you an example. Um, so I mentioned that I, I grew up in a neighborhood that's mostly Pakistani immigrants and so I went to school with a lot of first sex, first and second generation and immigrant um, brown kids. Um, from both like, like different Asian countries, not just Pakistan. But I remember that like there were only a handful of white people in our school, and even within my own race, even within like Pakistani or brown people or South Asian people, there was there was like uh like the males would be racist towards the females, like giving favor to the lighter skin folks over the darker skin folks even though you're dark skin yourself like do you know what I'm trying to get at like it was automatically assumed that like the the white or the latina or I'm just trying to remember the east asian or or other um like women that were and there were only a handful in my school um that were there had like more value associated with what they had to say, with what they were doing, with what they would wear, just because um, they looked the way that, they looked the way that like other Canadian folks look, you know what I mean? Um, whereas with all the brown people that I went to school with, it was kind of like, okay, you're a brown person. You're the same as every other immigrant brown person here. Um, I'm going to give you less value and less worth because I know that you have to still do all of the work um to get to the point that these other people are at um and so I've experienced that from people of my own race and I've also kind of perpetuated these things right like I have I was student council president in my high school but I still felt anytime I took the stage that I didn't have the right to be there I felt like I was an imposter right um I felt like I had to go out of my way and come up with a personality that was a performance in order to get the attention and the respect of my peers. And that took a toll on me. I didn't have an easy time as a city council president. You can ask anyone who went to high school with me. In my senior year, it was a, I was having a very difficult time. And it was because I was in a position that directly contradicted all the things that I had been told my entire life. That I could and could not do. I was told my whole life that I could not be in a position of power like that, and in, in a leadership position by myself, like leading the organization, and be able to fulfill my duties responsibly. I was told that I would have to choose between um, my grades and my my extracurriculars uh, because one would fall. Like I was constantly told different narratives from different people coming from my own family, from from people in my community, from people at school, from people who were all types of races and colors, that because of who I was, the identity I held, that being in that position, I already had like a really difficult time set out in front of me. Whereas even if you take someone who is the exact same ethnicity and religion and culture as me, but he's male, if he were in that position, it's automatically assumed that he would have an easier time. So I had that narrative in my head that I wasn't good enough or that I was not going to be able to do this easily. And just because of that narrative, I created obstacles for myself. I didn't speak up when I should have spoken up. I felt like I didn't have the right to speak up. Um, I I kind of was walking on eggshells the whole time. And like, I received negative feedback for that too. I had um, a teacher once who basically told me that that everything that was wrong um with my grade, my, that senior grade was a reflection of who I was as a person that like I didn't have the ability to lead. Um, and that's why that's why like everything was going wrong. And this teacher was a person of color, right? And so when you're surrounded by um, people who are perpetuating a and knowing that the person perpetuating it is also is also a victim of that oppression, it's so confusing because you're like, like, what are you doing? Like, how am I doing? Like, my, should I even be doing? Like, there's so much doubt that gets put into you that in addition to all the obstacles you have ahead of you, all the emotional, physical, and psychological labor that you have to do, you're now doubting if, if you have the ability to do that. And a lot of times I in my psychology courses in school, like, they talk about the fixed versus the growth mindset and how you can do all of this work to, like, develop a growth mindset and all of that. And I've come to understand that throughout my life, my position on those things, it has been a direct result of my experiences as a person of color. Um, anytime I've had a fixed mindset, it's because I have been led to believe by all of these different layers um, of people, systems, societies, organizations, that I'm incapable of certain things that I intuitively knew I was capable of. Yeah, I went on a really long rant there. Um no no but. like th- that was
0: so insightful man <laughs> that was I was just like listening I was just like yes say say it sister. <laughs> like you know yeah. like oh my god like a lot of what you said I think um is also what a lot of us were also thinking about but like you know we just don't have we, we just don't say it like or express it as beautifully as you um I, I just want to get my low point saying that like um about internalized racism I, I just remember like I don't know like if Hania like have experienced this of the model minority of like Asians being the model minority I just remembered it was like when I was young I had to get like a good grade this is this um perpetuated all the way till like university absolutely and, yeah um, absolutely for high school it was always oh you're Asian, so you have to have a good grade. You have to be good at math, like you have to have like 80s and above. And it was true for a lot of people in my school. A lot of um, Asians in my school. It doesn't matter if you're East Asian or you're South Asian. The um, the thought was basically you have to be smart. You have to have this grade, and it made me very stressed. Actually, like. For me, like I believed in that, like internalized, like racism, like that stereotype. I, to me, I was like, um, I need to get at least an eighty-five and above because if I don't, it would be shameful to me, and then my my um, peers as well as my family may actually look down on me because I wasn't doing well, and it's expected of me to do well, and. I, I hate to say it, but like it was very stressful for me in university as well as high school, just to get those grades. Um, um, it was either high like grades, like studying to get all this, like um, to study to get those high grades. And I miss, I, I feel like I missed out on a lot of like extracurricular activities. Like, um, you know, like for, like I didn't just have the time to actually do any of that. And just like that, I feel like it's one of the um, for Asians is one of the um, most, you know, like biggest internalized um, stereotypes that we as a group like believe, I don't know, like, even like in the um, second generation, like people who grew up here, they're like a lot of them have to like, you know, by their parents' standards or their peers who pressure like in this like um circle of that you have to do well. There's another one that I want to um share about my experiences is actually when I was young like very young like six or seven I was in day camp and I didn't like sunscreen like I hated sunscreen so I never put on sunscreen or if I did I put on as little as possible and then like basically it made me really dark because and I was in the sun playing a lot, so, like, um, I, I was surprised I didn't get skin cancer, but, like, it just made me really dark, and I remember some of my peers saying, oh, you're so dark, you look like a Filipino, and then, to me, like, the way they said it, like, and this was, like, uh, people of color, too, and they're, like, oh, you're so dark, and there was, like, East Asians, and they're, like, you're so dark, you look like a Filipino, and I, I thought to myself at that time, I was, like, what's wrong with being a Filipino. Like the way they said it is people who are dark skinned, East Asians, where like in terms of Filipinos, they're Southeast Asians, um, who are dark skinned are somehow worth less because of their skin color. Like even in um, people of color, like, um, and Hanya said, like in Pakistanis, they treat like people, they treat like people with lighter skin colors better, right? And this also happens in like East Asian like culture too. Like whereas if you're like your your skin color is as like pale as possible, then like you know, you're pretty. But if your skin is dark, like like a Filipino, like um, then you're considered ugly. You're considered lower in status or like lower in stats. It just this internalized racism of like it also goes back to like when um Um, Ajay said about like it's also part of uh, supremacy where the lighter you are the whiter you are the better and I feel like a lot of um, people of color they internalize that like um, to internalize that racism like this white supremacy onto other people of color to put them down because they feel like oh if I'm closer to being white then I am superior than you are. I just wanna kind of get that out there. You guys have like any other input to like um, this topic? Um, Yeah, (laughs) I just wanna kind of say that because like it's been bothering me like when when Hanya like talked about those internalized racism and how like people are treated because of their skin color, because like of who they are.
1: Um, I can jump jump in. There's so much there like, yeah like there's so much there and I don't even know I I was gonna start and I was like where do I start um colorism is such a big such a topic I think across cultures um in the black communities is similar um where the lighter you are the more privilege you have like growing up in Jamaica I saw that a lot um especially like in the the town the more city areas in Jamaica, we have this thing called like uptown versus downtown. And if you're from uptown, like you're usually a lighter skin with like curly hair, um, really well like well off. And if you're downtown, you're like from the ghetto, from the poor area, and usually like a darker skin person. Um, and then you have like folks who are brown skin. So colorism is is, is a big deal um, in Jamaica. And as I came over here too, it's a similar thing. So like I mentioned earlier, it's like yo know, folks who are um, darkest skin. Black folks who are darkest skin experience um, racism differently from myself, who's 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 lighter skin. And it's there's I remember like experiences in the workplace where like I, I experienced dating like like just dating dating folks. I remember in university I I was to talking to this person and they looked at me and they're like yo um, because you're lighter skin you're okay. They're like yo if if the person's too dark it itches their skin and I was just like yo you 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 literally you're you're this it was a white person i'm like you're 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 this confident to like look at me and tell me that like because i'm not skin i'm it's okay and if someone's dark it itches your skin I'm like what do you what do you like i don't know i was so upset and i was like all right like i'm cutting this person it's,
2: it's constantly reinforced that's like yeah. it's accepted as that's okay and it's yeah. reinforced and In this society, it's like if I'm not lighter colored, I don't have a right to be angry at that. Do you know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. human emotions are not a right that I hold to express if I don't fall into a certain category. Mm -hmm. If a white person corrects another white person or a lighter skinned person corrects another lighter skinned person when they say something racist or oppressive, it's taken more seriously Whereas if you are a person of color speaking out against it, it's taken as you're being too emotional or you're speaking mm-hmm. from a place that's too emotional. I remember, oh, I remember in Quebec um, when this bill, I believe it's been passed now, uh, a while now. I went to um, see some family in in London, UK last year. And we were talking about this bill in Quebec where you are not allowed to wear any, um, any religious symbols if you are a public servant. So if you do any kind of uh, government or um, publicly reg- regulated job in the public sector, um, and what that meant was if you were a teacher, a bus driver, a grocery store clerk, um, like anything that's, actually, I don't know about the grocery store, but anything publicly funded or regulated, um, you are not allowed to wear a hijab or a turban or like a a necklace with um, a cross or anything like that. Now, if you take a look at that bill, it is still benefiting people who are not of color because um, those religious groups that I've just listed, the ones that were largely disadvantaged, are the ones that were um, people of color, people who are Typically um, darker skinned or just not white. And I remember having a conversation with um, someone uh, about this. And it was surprising because this person was also like the exact same race, religion, and background as me. But again, I was having this conversation and uh, I was talking about how it is unfair and inequitable um, for this bill to be passed. And he said, Well, you wear a hijab. So of course you think that. I try to help him understand that I'm angry, yes, because it impacts people who look like me, but I'm angry because we now have a government that claims to be um, secular, meddling in religious affairs and making it a matter of um, law or, or public policy. And that is a problem to me because I don't think anyone has the the right to impose on my faith or my religion or anyone's faith or religion or ability to practice like dressing or behaving. Um, I won't go so far as to say behaving because that goes into like judicial problems. But anyone who's telling me that like, I can and cannot dress a certain way, try to explain to him that like, I would have the same problem if you told me that um, women were no longer allowed to wear like, uh, like a bikini or something at a beach. I would have the same problem because you're now imposing on my right or on anyone's right, to like to how they're going to express themselves, what they're going to wear, and that's a problem. It's a human rights problem. And he was like, "No, um, you're speaking from an emotional place because you wear a hijab, and this this particular um, law affects you as a person." And I think what I'm trying, the point I'm trying to make is, we act like um, as human beings, we have the ability to completely separate ourselves from our experiences, or our biases, or our subjectivity. And somehow act as like objective people who are always super righteous because we're making an, an effort to be objective, um, and acting from a place of emotion or personal experience is seen as uncredible, like it's not credible. Um, but then it's that idea in itself is flawed. It's also what I'm going to go off again on a tangent, but it's also what science is based off of, right? We give credibility to things that you can put a number on, that you can measure with a scale. Um, And we do not give credibility to things that are abstract or emotional. Um, And that's why, again, you see psychology as a field that's sidelined compared to biology, right? Because biology is tangible, psychology is abstract. And so it goes back to things that, it goes back to colonialism, because things that are tangible can be controlled. And where you have fields like biology or things like laws where you're controlling how people behave and, and what they wear, Like these are things that you can control. And so um, I think I'm going back to colonialism because colonialism is about control, right? It's about um, taking in as much resources and as much power as you can in order to take control of society of different countries of the world. Um, That's like, that creates a power imbalance. And that's, that's what I mean when I say that our societies are built off of systems of oppression because if there was no oppression, our society wouldn't exist. Colonialism wouldn't exist. Again, I forgot where I started, but that was kind of like uh, an insight I wanted to give on just how deep rooted this is on how we could talk about this forever um, and try to strategize. But I think at the end of the day, it's a matter of action. It's a matter of demonstration rather than, um, you know, responding to people in violent ways or trying to perpetuate because when you do that, you're perpetuating the system, right?
0: Um, yeah, I I agree with like, again like I'm just saying like over and over again. But like, honey, I like what you're saying is just like so much agreement on that. Um, I just want to say we could go on forever like just talking about like the forms of racism and like how racism perpetuates like over over again. It's just a cycle of this like thing happening. And I just want to say like a lot of the options and like thoughts as well as like you know like um spoken by Ajay and Hanya are just like so insightful and thank you guys so much for like your insightful, beautiful, intelligent like you know, thoughts on like how we experience racism as well as how like, you know, racism happens. And like, I don't know, I, I feel like I feel like we could just go on and on and on. <laughs> but um again Thank you very much. Thank you, Ajay. Thank you, Hania for um, this beautiful podcast, insightful podcast. And um, I wish you guys a happy, happy day. Thank you. Thank you to Ajay and Hania for sharing their insightful thoughts as well as their experiences on racism in this podcast. This is the first podcast out of two podcasts on the topic of racism. On the second podcast, we will be interviewing Mitch and Gloria on their experiences on racism as well as their thoughts on the topic. Please stay tuned for the second podcast. And thank you for listening.